You're listening to the North American Francophone Podcast, hosted in English by Claire-Marie Brisson and proudly recorded in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the North American Francophone Podcast. I'm your host, Claire-Marie Brisson, and today I'm excited to join my voice as part of the Franco-American Voices series. A little bit of background about why I created this series I noticed in online forums, as well as with other podcasts, that there are a lot of francophones and creolophones in North America in geographies that sometimes never meet. And now with the current global situation, as we find ourselves more and more face-to-face -face with one another online, these connections and these communities are becoming closer. And I wanted to get really the voice of different members of this community on the podcast, different members of geographically distant communities as well, that would be dialoguing with me and also dialoguing with the rest of the community as people have tuned in. I felt like my own voice was present in many of the interviews, but I also thought that I should contribute a separate episode about my own history and experience with my Franco-American voice and identity. And so this podcast episode is going to look at a few things. It's going to look at myself as a Franco-American, as a creator of a podcast, as somebody who is working on her dissertation in Franco-American and French-Canadian studies, and then looking at how I feel interacting with other Franco-Americans and how I feel my identity has changed because of it. My story really begins in Metro Detroit. You have probably heard this multiple times. I mention Michigan in many of my episodes, and with good reason. I spent about 25 years of my life in Michigan in total. And growing up in Michigan, in Metro Detroit, I knew that I was in a very special geographic space. I was about a 10-minute drive from the border between Detroit and Windsor. I lived in a place where I could pick up Radio Canada on the radio just as easily as NPR. So I was living a bifurcated existence, an existence where I felt at once Canadian and at once American. But not just any type of Canadian and not just any type of American. I had another layer to that. I felt that I was a Franco-American, and unfortunately, I didn't have a word for that identity at the time. I knew that I was a Francophone, I knew that my family settled in Michigan from Quebec, but I didn't know how to really describe myself. At the time, I probably would have thought Franco-American meant somebody who settled in the United States from France. And that is really a perspective that a lot of people had, and have, when they meet me. Now, this conundrum is not just in the United States when I try to express my identity here. It's also happened in France when I lived there and in Germany when I lived there as well. So it's interesting to see the different understandings and interpretations of what it means to be Franco-American across geographies and the important questions that arise when somebody who identifies themselves as Franco-American or more geographically specific Franco-Louisianan, Franco-Michigander, Franco-New Englander, Acadian, Québécois, what all of these words mean to other people. And so, as somebody who grew up in Metro Detroit, I had the luxury, and I say the luxury because not so many people have this opportunity, to compare myself across the border. I was always facing Canada, and when I was in Canada, I was always facing the United States. There was 
a very introspective element to living in Metro Detroit, and even more so with the community that surrounded me. Living between Canada and the United States, living in Metro Detroit, having the opportunity to engage with Canadian media and American media every single day, and knowing that my family had come from Quebec really helped me to start questioning my identity. And even more so, my community itself helped me question what it meant to have an identity and what it meant to have multiple identities that build on one another. I grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, which has the most vibrant Middle Eastern population in the United States that I know of, and so many of my neighbors were either born or grew up with family that had ties to Lebanon, to Yemen, and to different parts of the world that found a point of unity with language. Now, of course, not every Arabic speaker is going to be using fusha or the standard Arabic that's used in, for example, Quranic studies every single day, but there was a point of unity for people in town with language and for some even with faith. And for me, that was a very inspiring thing to see that people from around the world and Americans were coming together, were speaking, using Arabic, had Arabic signage on the bakeries, on the stores. And when I would go into different places, I heard transactions in English, in Arabic, from time to time, even Spanish for the thriving Spanish-speaking population in Metro Detroit. And it was an interesting crossroads as well for me to see that occurring in my own backyard. And so as a multilingual person myself, I found myself in a community that didn't at all speak a language that I spoke. It's an interesting thing to think about, but people who speak a minority language or people who speak a language in a community that's surrounded by another majority language, they can sometimes build one another and help one another understand what the status of their own language is. And for me, that's what Dearborn did. It allowed me to see this community and see all the connections that existed there. And then for me to branch out and think, okay, well, what could this look like for me as a Francophone in Michigan? And then I started finding small pockets of Francophones in the Metro Detroit area. And then I began to uncover not only the history, but the present and the future of the French language in Michigan. And that was... I think the most powerful moment. I began to go to French language meetups in a city called Royal Oak, and that place had a lot of people who had studied French who were very interested in the France aspect, but there were also people from around the Francophone world who came to share their language, who came to really express themselves in French and say, hey, look, we're here, we're visible, and we want to be engaged with other members of our community. And that was a second layer of understanding what language could do and how language can build communities in Metro Detroit and in Michigan in general. So by the age of 18, I really had a strong appreciation for language because of my community, but also because of my own Franco-American voice. I decided then as I entered the University of Michigan what I was going to study and how I could really represent languages well. And at first I thought I would be an international lawyer. I thought, well, I'm on the border with Detroit and Windsor. I speak French. I speak English. This would be a perfect job opportunity. But then as I started looking deeper and deeper into it, I understood that it wasn't the law 
that interested me as much as it was the people who interested me, the places that interested me. And that's where I had a shift. I knew that I had to focus a lot more on the language and on the culture and on the preservation of the richness of these cultures in the plural. And in my undergraduate years, I was especially struck by how France-centric my studies had been when I was a Franco-American trying to understand myself through these courses. Now, granted, I think it's very important to study French history, French literature, and the like in courses that are called French, right? There is a connection there. But I didn't see the level of diversity and multivocality that I thought was necessary in understanding the global world that speaks French. The lack of representation in that realm has made many Michigan schools, for example, cut French programs from high schools, including my own former high school. And I think the reason is because people didn't understand how important French is to the global world and also to the world that is so close to people growing up in Metro Detroit. Even a 10-minute, 15-minute drive, you'll find Franco-Ontarians right across the border, and the more you interact with the multilingual communities of Michigan, the more you'll see that there are a lot of Francophones there as well. But unfortunately, the approach that made France privileged in studies in high schools and even in colleges made people feel that French wasn't as necessary or as important or as global or as forward-thinking. And I felt very badly about that because I saw that French was an important part of my life, but also represented a very large number of people who just didn't have the definitions or the way to explain themselves well in the United States. And those are the Franco-Americans. And this is something that authors like David Vermette have struggled with. They've talked about, in even on this podcast, they've talked about the way that we represent ourselves, the way that we identify, and the way that we express the Franco-American story, the Franco-American voice, and history. And it's very complicated for me, even to this day, to think about my own Franco-American voice, even within the academy and outside of it. And so, because of all of these experiences, I decided that my identity would do well from experiencing what people had always referred to, and that was France. And so, I focused on France and ideology in the Second World War in a master's program at Wayne State University in Detroit. And even though my university was about a five-minute drive to the Ambassador Bridge, which connects Detroit and Windsor, not too many things were at all talking about Canada in any of the courses, nor about the French Canadians, nor about the fact that if you turned your radio on, you could hear Radio Canada in French right there. Um, there was a lot of knowledge about France. There was a lot of knowledge about literature, the Renaissance, 18th, 19th century theater and art. But I didn't see anything that pointed to a knowledge of what was right there, what was so close. And for me, that was mind boggling. How were we at Wayne State University in Detroit facing the border with Canada, not talking about Canada in our French classes? How were we at Wayne State University in Detroit, Detroit, not talking about that Francophone past, not recognizing that 
there was a Francophone legacy right in our own backyard, right under our nose. And how were we not talking about other Francophone areas of North America? Why weren't we saying much about Louisiana or about New England? In fact, I didn't know that New England had such a strong Franco-American past until recently. I'm ashamed of that. That's something that really escaped my own education and my own knowledge as a Franco-American. And now I feel that I'm much more connected to these stories, but it would have been so inspiring to know about them while I was in university, while I was doing my master's. This is something that took me years to know, and there are plenty of people out there, I'm, I'm sure, that don't know about it yet. And that's an exciting thing, because as an educator, I can teach people about this, and other people can teach people about this, but... The lack of knowledge and the lack of study and the lack of resources to identify and give voice to these communities is kind of confusing and kind of sad and something that I hope to rectify. But in those years at my institution in Detroit at Wayne State University, I decided to focus on France to really understand what I was missing, how identity and ideology formed in France, how people resisted occupation by the Nazis during the Second World War. That was my main topic about propaganda and how their voices emerged from that time. I was also interested in this experience of visiting France and studying France because of the questions that always arise when talking about identity and when talking about my own identity. Are you from France? Were you born in Paris? How is France? I had never visited France until 2014, and this was in my master's program. I never did any study abroad that was in France in my undergraduate years. In fact, my study abroad was in Canada. I worked in a parliamentary position as an intern in the Senate of Canada, which was a very exciting and interesting experience. More on that later, maybe in the future. But uh, it was a time for me that I could actually engage with France. And also it was a subject that I felt implicated in because as far as I know, my grandfather was the first person in my direct family to have gone back to France since the 1600s during the Second World War. That's huge. Revisiting that, returning across the Atlantic in an opposite direction and assisting in the way that he did as a soldier during the Second World War, helping to liberate France from Nazism, from fascism. And there are really no words that can accurately portray how it makes me feel to think that the first person in my family that I know of that went back to France went back to assist and discovered a place that spoke French, that had a similar cultural trajectory, a similar history for many years, a similar set of mores and values and identities, and yet was so distant and so separate and completely cut off from one another across the Atlantic. I mean, that for me is such an intriguing experience. And so I wanted to have my own experience as a researcher myself. And I spent time in Avignon, France. I had a scholarship awarded to me by the National Endowment for the Humanities to look at theatricality, reality, and surrealism in Second World War and post-World War theater. And that, for me, really did help me to concretize my final thesis in my master's program, but it also gave me questions. It made me think about 
How did people in North America react to trauma and react to difficulties in their lives? And how do they identify? How do they construct their identity? And this was something that I continued to toy with and think about as I applied to PhD programs. And I finally chose the University of Virginia because the University of Virginia has a French department that really focuses on identity. It looks at questions of historicity, culture, and I knew that I could find voice for my own ideas here. And so once I arrived, I began thinking about my own status as a Francophone in North America. I began thinking about how I, for the first time, for a very long time, was going to be away from things I knew. I was going to be away from the border with Canada. I was going to be away from Michigan. And I was dedicating five plus, possibly, years of my life to a subject being far removed from that subject. That's something that a lot of people ask me, well, why did you go to the University of Virginia? Well, one, it's a fantastic institution, but two, I don't think that I could have produced or continued to produce the work I am working on right now had I been in a place like Quebec or Michigan or somewhere where I felt very comfortable with the history there. I actually think that Charlottesville and Virginia provided me the knowledge of what people know outside of places like Michigan or Canada or New England or Louisiana. And the fact of the matter is, not many people know the story of North American Francophones, even if there is a North American Francophone history in that area. There is clearly a North American Francophone connection to Charlottesville, for example, but there is really nothing here that identifies it or studies it or talks about it. And yet the Marquis de Lafayette lived here. And yet there were so many people who established vineyards here and continue to work in the vineyards here. There were many Huguenots who moved to Virginia. There were many Acadians who were displaced and were brought to Virginia. So there are layers of that history that are here, but that are not talked about and that are a little bit invisible. And so that has motivated me to continue finding my voice through my academic works. And in November 2019, I was sitting on my couch and I had been talking to a friend of mine who said, oh, you should listen to some podcasts while you're working out or while you're doing something else. It'll really motivate you and energize you. And I said, oh, great. That's a great idea. And so I started looking through Apple Podcasts and Spotify, and I wanted to see if there were any podcasts that spoke about North American Francophones or Francophone History. And I came across the Maple Stars and Stripes podcast and I came across the French Canadian Legacy podcast. Both podcasts are really phenomenal, but the scope and the focus was not exactly what I was looking for. I felt like they were more geographically aimed towards New England, a little bit separate from the globality that I wanted from a podcast. That's not to say those podcasts are not phenomenal. You should tune in to both of them. They are really, really great. Maple Stars and Stripes has an incredible ancestry level that I could never do. And the French Canadian Legacy podcast represents New England and Quebec so well. It does a great job of branching out and talking about different topics and bringing interesting interviewees onto the show. So I highly recommend them. But I didn't see the sort of connections I wanted to see. I didn't see the level of, I guess, borderlessness from a podcast. And I, I wanted to have a little bit more mixing between people from different parts of Canada, 
outside of Quebec, different parts of the United States, within areas like Louisiana and New England, but also outside of it. And I think as a Michigander, that also helped me to understand that I was a minority voice for the North American Francophone experience. And so that very night, I sat down and Googled, how do I start a podcast? And within about an hour, I had the North American Francophone podcast set up with Buzzsprout and I decided to really launch my podcast with something I am very passionate about, that's cooking. I found an 1800s cookbook that played on an original cookbook that was brought across the Atlantic by French settlers and then was reimagined for North American francophones and specifically French Canadian kitchens. And I thought, well, this is going to be a fun place to start. I'm going to cook through this. I'm going to cook a couple of recipes through this. And who knows where my podcast is going to continue and lead me. And after my second podcast episode where I did cook some of the recipes, I got contacted by some journalists at Radio Canada. And they were very curious about my podcast and very curious about what I was doing. And I thought, wow, I didn't expect to get this already. I just started this. And so I started talking about what my mission was. And really in talking to them, I created the mission for the North American Francophone podcast, which is to give a diverse space to North American Francophones or others who consider themselves a part of the Francophone community, whether they be Creolophone or even Anglophone voices, to share their stories, to share how they're connected to Francophone history, but also Francophone culture today and Francophone culture for the future. I felt that this needed to be an intersectional space, a place that didn't hold on to just one geography or one people, but really represent the diversity that is possible with the French language in North America. And when I was describing that to journalists from Radio Canada, I surprised myself because it was the first time I ever could clearly say how I wanted this project to be and how I identified myself. Much like the podcast, I see myself as someone who has multiple identities in the plural, that I'm connected to Michigan just as much as I'm connected to my family's history in Quebec and beyond. I feel that I'm connected to other people who are a part of the Francophone experience in North America, even if I've never really lived in that geography. And beyond that, I feel connected to North Americans in general, regardless of the language that you speak, regardless of what your history was. At the present, I feel connected to many people that I meet. When I hear about people's general life history, their families, where they came from, and where they're going in life, I feel like that's the story of many North Americans, and that's exciting because Francophone North Americans are so much a part of the North American story, the story of people who have multiple identities, multiple languages, and are proud to share in those languages and are proud to share their traditions with other people, but also are proud of their community and want to make sure that their community thrives in a diverse way. It's a very complicated balancing act because I think people are proud of their geographies. I'm proud to have grown up in Michigan, for example. I know a lot of people are very proud to be Louisianan, are proud of being a New Englander. And that's great. But we also need to realize that there's a thread that links all of us in North America and that we can learn so much from one another. 
And it's because of this that I also asked many of my interviewees this question. I said to them, do you think that you can have a francophone voice in English? Do you think that you can really represent the francophonie in English? And the answers varied. Many people said that they wanted people to learn French. Of course, it's very important to speak French, to be part of the francophone community. But many people said that you didn't really need to speak French to understand North American francophone issues or identity. And that is exactly why I created this podcast. I didn't see anything that was really tangibly available about academic topics and topics from diverse geographies in English. And so I wanted to open the door to that discussion, open the door to Anglophones who may not have access to learning French or may have tried and just don't speak a level of French that they're comfortable with and still continue to dialogue and have an interest in francophone issues, even if they are not a part of the linguistic community. And so I think that is a large reason why I created this podcast was because as a Franco-American, my own Franco-American voice, of course, is expressed in French, but it is expressed as much as it is in French as it is in English. And often I am expressing myself more about my identity in English than I am in French because with my French comes an accent, comes a story, comes questions, comes thoughts about where I belong in the Francophone world. And people pick up on that who speak French. But in English, I have to really explain and detail and deconstruct ideas of Frenchness to people all the time. And so when I'm talking about my Franco-American voice, I think that highlighting the American part of it, I do that in English. I really express myself as an American, as a North American, not just talking about the United States, but talking about being an American in English, because there is such a forum for questions of identity in English at this point in the academy, but also outside of the academy, that I think my most powerful tool is being able to communicate with others in that language. Now, on the opposite side, when I communicate with others in French, I'm able to express a lot about the Franco-American identity and community when I'm using my French and describing that, yes, there are Francophones outside of Quebec. Yes, there are people across the United States and across Canada who speak French as a first or second language who are very proud to do so. And these conversations arose when I lived in Europe, when I lived in Avignon, but also when I lived in Lyon in 2015. I would bring up the topic of being a North American who spoke French. And many times people were a little bit confused, were a little bit questioning of what that meant. Were you just a Francophile? Were you just somebody who loved France? No, I said, I'm somebody that grew up with French all of my life. And that is a distinction that I also had to make outside of North America. So thinking about the North American Francophone podcast, I wanted to highlight the North Americanness of it. Because being Francophone, you know, obviously people start thinking of France the first time you say French speaking. But thinking of North American Francophones, people start to question the geography, start to think about the geography a lot more. And I remember having a conversation in a cafe in the area of Lyon with somebody who was very kind. We were having a dialogue about art, actually. And then all of a sudden, the question of my accent came up. 
And the person I was speaking to thought that I was from maybe a regional area in the south of France, thought that maybe I had grown up on a rural or agricultural area. And then I had to tell her that, well, I actually was a North American and I would consider myself to be an American and to have roots in Quebec. And she was so shocked to hear that. She said, well, I didn't know that people who spoke French still existed outside of Quebec. And then the dialogue happened where I described my own experience and then described the experiences that I knew of at that point. But had I had the voice I have now, had I known what I know now, I could have said so much more. And those dialogues also happened when I lived in Germany. I had lived in the south of Germany and I've taught programs in Stuttgart, Germany, as well as in Berlin and in Weimar. I've had the experience of describing what it means to be a North American francophone in German to people when they see my name, because they'll say, oh, well, you're, you must be from France. And then I have to go through the same conversation I have to go through in English. And so with one of my other languages, I am also doing the same work that I hope to do with this podcast, which is to increase visibility, to increase understanding, but also to develop a voice for Franco-Americans and to help in my own way. Of course, I'm only one person. I can do just so much. But at this point, I see that there are a lot of people who have been on the podcast and who hopefully will soon be on the podcast who contribute to this work and who realize that North American Francophone studies, but also North American Francophone voices are so important to give visibility to and are so important to have a space for North American Francophones at this point, but also in thinking of the future, when I think about Scott Tilton and Rudy Basnet's project of New in New Orleans, the New Foundation, which was the previous episode, they're also thinking about an inclusive approach, an approach that allows for Creolophones and Francophones to have a space, a physical space, but also a vocal space and also a social media space for their language and for their culture. And I think that's so important now and moving forward when we think about the connections that we've established on online to think about concretizing those, to think about making those more of a reality in academic circles, but also in everyday life, allowing people to really participate on an everyday basis. When I think about Jonathan Olivier's Potager d'Acadiana, the sustainable farm that exists in Louisiana, he's doing just that. He's allowing people to buy produce in the language of their choice and making French an everyday thing, making it something that is accessible and exciting and a part of the community. And again, returning to my own history and story as a Franco-American who grew up in Dearborn, Michigan, I can imagine just the level and import that it has on people who speak Arabic to be able to dialogue and use the language of their choice in bakeries and in cafes and in restaurants all across the city. I think that that for them is an important experience. And as we grow and really make our communities grow stronger together and connect with one another in the Francophone North American world, I think that we can do that as well. We can make it easier for people to have a Francophone consciousness every single day. And as a future professor, I hope that I can do that as well in the classroom. So I know I've become a little bit verbose at the end of this podcast, but I do hope that uh, you understand where I'm coming from with my research, with my work, with my own Franco-American voice. And to finish this podcast, I want to talk about where I'm going with it. 
I would like to use the podcast as a means to really allow for Franco-Americans, but also Francophones, people who consider themselves Francophiles, also Anglophones, people who are just in general interested and excited in engaging with the Francophone and Creolophone communities in North America, to lend their voice and to share their unique perspectives on the podcast in order to build a better sense of the community in order to build a better sense of what projects are going on in academia, but also outside of academia, in the realm of art, in the realm of music, in the realm of any type of cultural production, and in the realm of community building, the realm of business. We need to realize that North American francophoneness has to be not just a stereotype, it can't just be talking about folklore, it has to be talking about the here, the now, and the future. And so as I move forward with podcast episodes, I'm excited to really bring in people from all walks of life to talk about their connection to the North American Francophonie, but also to talk a little bit about topics that come up that are lesser known. And it's in that diversity of topics that I really think that uh, my own interviews have found their strength, and I really, really enjoy talking to other people about their own perspectives on this topic. For me personally, as I continue and finish my PhD, I'm set to defend my dissertation next year at the University of Virginia. Not sure if it's going to be in person or if it's going to be digital, depending on the situation with COVID in 2021. But as I move towards that as well, I realize that there's a certain level that I can reach writing my own dissertation with a blank Microsoft Word page where I'm staring there for hours typing away. And then there's another level where I reach out to you like I'm doing right now. And this has provided me so much more reality and so much more excitement in my research than anything else. And so I want to thank you, my listeners, for the support that you continue to give me as I move forward and as I create podcast episodes. And as a final point for the podcast episode today, thank you for listening to my own story. I didn't want to really spend so much time talking about myself on this, but I feel that giving my own voice to the Franco-American Voices series, it would have been completely an oversight not to share my own voice. And as I move forward, if you'd like to share your own project or research or have something interesting to contribute to the blog, feel free to send me an email at northamericanfrancophone at gmail.com or send a contact form submission on thefrancophone.com. I'll be happy to get back to you as soon as possible. Again, I mentioned the other day on social media that I'm moving towards a summer schedule, which means that I'm going to be releasing podcast episodes bi-weekly rather than weekly over summer. I'm teaching a five-day-a-week course on Zoom at the University of Virginia, and so unfortunately, the six to eight hours that I usually take up to make a podcast episode, just I don't have that time every week at this point. So feel free to send me an email if you'd like to collaborate at any point, and I will be posting more episodes in the weeks to come. As a final note, I just want to make sure that everybody who's listening to the podcast knows I'm thinking about you as we move through this pandemic, and I hope that you are all well. 2020 has been quite a year, and I hope that you and your families are staying safe, keeping your social distance, keeping healthy, but also staying optimistic. Do something that makes you smile today. And thanks again for supporting the North American Francophone Podcast. Mm-hmm.